Welcome to Uneducated, a podcast by Yafed, where we are speaking to yeshiva graduates, parents, policymakers, and other stakeholders about the lack of secular education in ultra-Orthodox and Hasidic yeshivas across New York. I am the executive director, Naftali Moster, and I thank you for tuning into this episode. Welcome to Uneducated, a podcast by Yafed. Our guests today are Shifra and Johanan Lowen, a couple that reside in Montreal, Quebec. They are known for bringing a lawsuit against the Quebec government for failing to properly enforce local education laws, allowing them and many others attending Hasidic yeshivas to be denied a basic education. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having us. I want to begin by asking you to share about your background. So let's start with where you each grew up what schools you attended, and what education you received. So let's begin with Johanan. Okay. Uh, I, I was born in London, England. And, uh, so I, and I was there until the age of 10. I, I went to a school called Tajbar, a cheder called Tajbar. I think it was the most extremist cheder or yeshiva in London. Um, they, they didn't even taught the ABC. In certain years, maybe a little bit of uh, math, but it was all in Yiddish, all done in Yiddish, not in English. So I didn't know the, the English terms for the, you know, only the Yiddish terms. Then from the age of 10, I grew up in Tosh, in Kiryas Tosh, uh, in Bobria, Canada. The studies in the Cheder was strictly Torah, Chumash, Rashi, Gemara, Toisfes, Turbas, Yosef, and so on. So what you're describing is the Old Testament, uh, the Talmud, Halacha, like Jewish law, and so forth. Yeah, it's basically uh, all based on the Talmud and goes according to the Talmud. Great. So that is basically you summing up what your education was like. So uh, let's turn to Shifra now. So for me, I was raised in Tosh from when I was a baby. So I went to the school. It was a girls' school only, obviously. And we had Yiddish in the morning, he, uh, religious studies. And then in the afternoon was divided uh, one and a half hour approximately for English and one and a half hour for friend. So basically what we had was the most focus on the religious studies. The English studies were extremely boring, deliberately so. Uh, as a matter of fact, I spoke to a, an English teacher who told me the principal complained to her for making English too exciting because then the religious studies wouldn't, would be in competition. And for me personally, I dropped out of, of uh, English courses. Then my mother was talking to the principal in Tosh and she told the principal that she's very concerned that I'm, I'm so overworked. I have so much homework. So she, she spoke to the principal if it, what, what she thinks, if, if we should continue to uh, keep me in school. So my principal told my mom, it's a very smart idea to take me out of English. 
I actually know everything needed for a, a, a Yiddish um, mom to know, to, to be able to speak to a doctor, to a taxi driver, to a cleaning lady. That's all I basically need to be a, a Jewish mother. So my mother went ahead and she took me out of English from seventh grade and up. I did not learn any English or French. When I moved away from Tush, my English was so bad, I could not even express myself in a sentence, express some thoughts and some uh, uh, sentiment. It was so hard to find the words because they are not just not taught, but they're also forbidden. Uh, we were brainwashed in a, in a very strong way against the impurity of the secular languages, that it, it taints your soul and you have to stay away, not just from talking it, uh, but also from reading anything that's not extremely important, like uh, for health benefits or stuff like that, or what's required by the government in school. But other than that, it's really uh, frowned upon. And uh, just to be clear, the law in Quebec uh, that encompasses Tush does require that even private schools provide that kind of basic education, or are they free to do what they want? So uh, according to government, it, even the, the private schools have to um, teach everything that the, that a public school is required to teach. You both grew up in Tush at one point, and then you got married, presumably in an arranged marriage. And then what happened? There was a lot of things going on. The, the reason and the, the way how we left the community was because uh, our son, our oldest son, he was uh, nine years old. One day he ran away from the, from the Hasidic school because his uh, rabbi, his teacher, was uh, sometimes slapping him. We decided he is right and we, we aren't going to send him back to the same uh, yeshiva. So we were looking for other, uh, other yeshivas to put him. Some people of the, um, my family and some Hasidic rabbis, they weren't happy with the fact that uh, uh, our son should go to a Litvish cheder. The children are speaking English and they have short payas, uh, side curls, and uh, they're doing some uh, sports. It's too far from the uh, Hasidic upbringing. That's what they, they thought. So they they put pressure on the other um, Haredi uh, schools uh, that uh, that our son should not be accepted. So he should be forced to stay in the Hasidic cheder um, that he lived at the time. For over a year, uh, our son didn't have any cheder uh, or any school till we... Um, registered him to a modern Orthodox school. And that's how the change happened. I love how he summed it up in short because it was a very long journey and a lot of things happened. But one thing that I do want to point out is that the Hasidic activists were so involved in our case. There's officially like people who are in charge. Whenever there's someone who wants to leave, um, there are people who the rabbi um, kind of makes responsible to take care of these people. They shouldn't be able to leave. So there are all kinds of different tactics. And one of the tactics is to threaten them that their children will be taken away, which 
would on the surface level not be a tactic available to, to for us because we were both together, right? My husband and I were both on the same page, unlike other uh, parents who they turn one against each other and they make the from person keep the kids inside the community, right? But since my son was not in Cheder, they made a whole uh, claim in, in child protective services um, about us um, allegedly abusing the kids. And they, they, they made a whole list of lies. And they added to that the fact that my son has not been in a school for a year uh, to point out that we are, quote unquote, isolating him and um, as one of the, 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 the claims of abuse. So what happened was they sent us from the Child Protective Services letters to um, inquire about the welfare of the kids, but they sounded more like a letter that came from the community. There was no letterhead. It was written in handwriting, um, and it had my kids' names spelled so badly that it didn't make sense to me that it's really from Child Protective Services. I thought that if it's from the government, they would know how to spell my kids' names because my kids are registered, right? Like they have a Medicare card and stuff like that. And the, the, third, the third letter that they sent was finally with a letterhead and it was typed up and they had a number there and they, they threatened that if we don't um, reply, they will have to go for a warrant. So my husband says, and what then? What, why are you so afraid? You're not in the wrong here. We are protecting our child. So, so he was abused and, and we're trying to find a better school for him. You just explained to the judge the truth. And that calmed me down. Still, I was afraid. One day there were police that broke down our door. So it was a traumatic experience for us. When I left Tosh, I was hoping that I had left that little enclave, that little isolated community where there was no accountability whatsoever and people could do whatever they want to each other. And I was afraid that they would physically take away my kids. And I thought that I moved to Montreal and there are police that can protect us and there are some, some law and order in place. Um, and here I am standing in front of two policemen who broke down my door and those people who are supposed to protect me seem to attack me. Thankfully, I kept calm and I explained to them the situation. I showed them the letters and they right away saw that my kids were okay and they were happy and they were taken care of. So they just made an agreement that they're going to be following our case just to make sure that my son finds a school. That's uh, fascinating and infuriating, to be honest, because what I'm hearing is that the yeshiva, you know, basically abused him and he had to run away and did not go to school because of this. And then the yeshiva people turned around and accused you as basically neglecting your child and failing to send him to a school. That's just a little small, tiny example of how the Hasidic system uses all the systems in place against their people. I don't think it was uh, particularly the yeshiva people uh, that went against us, but it was uh, people from, uh, from our Hasidic family and Hasidic rabbis from Montreal, including the, the chief rabbi. Here in New York, the Hasidic leadership is very powerful, but I've always assumed it is because they have so many numbers, right? They just have a very big population, so they wield a, a block vote, 
and therefore elected officials kind of pander to them and give them the kind of power. But I, I did not think of Montreal or of Quebec in general as being in the same kind of league. I assume that it's a much smaller community. So how is it that the Hasidic leaders have amassed this kind of power that you're describing? What happens is when they are so hungry for power, they need to find ways to make sure to secure that. And whichever way it happens, and in New York it's by block votes, and in England it's maybe in different ways, and in Israel it's maybe different ways. In Canada, the way they did it, in Montreal especially, um, they work with the Jewish agency, so they are kind of representative of the Hasidic community. And since the Jewish agency have no clue how to understand the Hasidic community, everybody who left was painted as a crazy one, and it's a lot easier for them to go with the establishment who tries to paint themselves as helping them to mediate. Who is the Jewish Agency? It's a, it's a huge charity organization. They are here to help, but in the past, they kind of did not have the, the access to know what's going on in the Hasidic community. So whatever the Hasidic leaders would, would sell them, they would just have to buy it because how would they know the truth? Now, granted, they don't actively participate in these kinds of charades. They don't actively help them abuse people who want to leave the community, but they're certainly not doing enough to counter the harm that's being done in some cases by these ultra-Orthodox leaders. And I think we do need to call on them and call them out for their lack of intervention. Please describe how the education system works in Quebec, what is required, and who is supposed to enforce it. Schools are required to provide everything that the uh, regular public school provides. What is in the law is that the government has to enforce it. The school board also has some part of the responsibility, and Child Protective Services has part of the responsibility. If there is a case where a child does not attend school, that the Child Protective Services knows about it, they cannot inform the government of Canada or the school board to take any measures. In other words, the law was in place, but there was no way of enforcing it. That was the excuse that came up after we started um, raising awareness about our case, after we started our lawsuit. They implemented new legislation, new laws, where the Child Protective Services can have the freedom to share information, and they also have the freedom to interfere. So what did your lawsuit allege? So the, the lawsuit alleged that we have here thousands of children that are uh, denied uh, basic education. The government doesn't do anything about it and no one is held accountable. The point of the lawsuit was first to get a declaratory judgment that what the government did in the past was against their own law. The next step would have been if we got a declaratory judgment to then um, be able to enforce change. Since the judge was hesitant about giving us the okay that it's true that the government did something against the law, in the past they didn't have the access, and now that they do, they are doing everything in their power to make sure to rectify the situation, which is still in question. I mean, we still have to wait and see what their supposed efforts will bring. After you filed the lawsuit, they went ahead and changed legislation and made it so that they can enforce the law. Now the judge turns around and tells you, 
hey, look, they are doing what they are, what they are supposed to now that the law has changed. Therefore, they're not going to issue that declaratory judgment. Is that correct? Pretty much. Tell me more about that. In Montreal, the Bell's Hasidic Cheder started teaching the kids English two hours at night. In Tash, though, I don't think in, in Satmar either, they did not really respond initially until they had the new law in place about homeschooling, which that was also a roundabout way to to give the Hasidic schools permission to teach the kids in the evening uh, English. The cheder called themselves a center, not a, not, a, not a school. When the inspectors came to enforce the law, they said they're not going to renew it, so they don't have to uh, follow through. They're just a center. And that was also part of our lawsuit where we are telling the judge this is this is an illegal school because they do not they do not have a license. A part of the judgment was also a victory for us because the the judge accepted everything we said about the situation. The the government made changes uh, that came because of our proceedings. So now it is better than it was before. In that uh, so-called homeschooling program. They, there is uh, teachers that uh, teach the children in Tosh some of the basic uh, secular education, but we, we all have to be alert and to see how it, how it works out and what the result will be. One of the Hasidic yeshivas, the day that the inspector uh, was supposed to came to test the children on French, uh, most of them uh, didn't know any French. What they did is the day before, they sent letters to all the families that uh, tomorrow the, the children shouldn't come to the regular yeshiva, but they, they will be placed in local shuls, every group in a different location. What the yeshiva did, they brought a bus from Kotz and Luke, a full bus of uh, Sephardi children, that uh, French is their mother tongue. Specter of the government came. Uh, he comes and the, he tests the children on French, and he sees uh, talking um, French fluently. So uh, he was happy. So and there was there, there there was other kind of tricks too. There is much more to do. Even with the new uh, homeschool program, it only works for the children till the age of thirteen. In the high school yeshiva, there is. There is zero secular education. Uh, we think that's a big problem. What are your next steps? And do you feel like the issue has been resolved or is there going to be a need for continued advocacy? So right now, our lawyer has decided not to appeal because the way that appeals work is if you have a convincing argument that any other judge would have given a different verdict, then you have a chance to go to make an appeal. But right now, since supposedly there are changes being enforced, uh, we need to give it a chance. That was the words of the judge. We need to give it a chance to work out. So our next step is basically to keep an eye. I believe change never happens overnight, substantial change takes a lot of time and patience and persistence and perseverance. So this is what we're ready to do. We're, we're, we're in this for the long haul. 
who supports you in this endeavor? I mean, I know you had a, a, at least one attorney. I'm assuming it's pro bono. Do you get support from the broader Jewish community or just from taxpayers? We did get support from the Jewish non-Haredi community, not financial support, but moral support. We did have this whole court case sponsored pro bono by the legal team of uh, Trudel Johnson, the ones that represented us. Yeah, we're very grateful for that. It's a team effort, a chance to change history for these children. And this is what we have in front of us. Any little change that happens for these children is worth it. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for all this information and for sitting down with me, for taking the time out of your day, especially after such an uh, eventful week. Good luck on your future advocacy, and we will obviously stay in touch. Thank you. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure for us. Thank you for listening. Please take a moment to share this episode with friends and colleagues, and please visit our channel for additional episodes. To submit a comment, or if you would like to be a guest on this podcast, please email us at uneducated at Thank you.